welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome. My guest today is Monique Johnson. Monique is the Medical Director at Physicians Education Resource and has more than 20 years of experience in the continuing medical education field. Monique shares some of the challenges that clinicians face when they're trying to learn and practice as clinicians, why she's passionate about having better education within this field, and how to overcome common structural barriers in healthcare that block health professionals from learning. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. Today I'm talking with Monique Johnson, Medical Director at Physicians Education Resource. Welcome, Monique. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> it's good to see you. I like to start these conversations with learning a little bit about how you found your way into continuing medical education and continuing professional development. I know you have a long uh, kind of expertise as a clinician, so it would be Mm -hmm. great if you could share a little bit about how you found yourself into this rather subterranean world. Absolutely. A question that's common in the CME Mm -hmm. world because almost none of us, at least when I started about 20 years ago, you know, came into it like as a career path out of college. Um, Most of the people um, in it now, my colleagues, my contemporaries that are working alongside me uh, in various aspects of CME, a lot of them were um, physicians, nurses, pharmacists. Uh, And I'm speaking specifically about the content development side of CME versus the uh, administrative uh, and accreditation parts. But I got started, um, of course, you know, we all in CME really love science. So I have an undergraduate degree at North Carolina State University in biochemistry. Mm. And that was, you know, very instrumental in just kind of getting me turned on about science and not just the end product of maybe a product, a therapeutic agent, but just like the molecules down to the molecular level. So I had that interest. After that, went to medical school. Uh, So after medical school, I did a pediatrics residency and in the day-to-day practice of pediatrics, I found that it was, uh, I was a little disillusioned. I felt like I wanted to do more patient care or be an administrator, but not both. Right. It was a time when the state I was, was practicing in, which was Ohio, was going through the whole managed care mm. transition. And of course, transitions and changes are hard. So it was a little just, it was the timing was very important too. But so after I decided I didn't want to do the daily practice of pediatrics, I landed back in North Carolina from Ohio and decided I wanted to do something with my education. I didn't know education existed in this realm and certainly not anything about CME, but I landed at a publishing company that produced materials uh, for pharmaceutical sales representatives, which basically taught them about the disease state, the therapeutic agent they were responsible for. 
it was pretty fun. It was a small group. I learned a lot about educational design and curricular development. Uh, and then from there, transitioned to another company, which was the first CME company I worked with. It was a for-profit accredited by ACCME, medical education company called Scienta Healthcare Education, small group. Uh, we went through self-studies and all the things to get accredited. And I really got my entree into CME in that company because we were small. We all did everything. I mean, there was not an accreditation person only or an outcomes person only. Um, I still did content development there primarily, but we had a group of five that worked on being a CME company. So everything from writing the self-study together to get to stay accredited and to get exemplary accreditation, I'm happy to say, to designing how we're going to report outcomes and a lot of the other aspects of doing education for CME purposes, uh, for accredited CME purposes, we I did it all. So I got a little taste of all the roles in a CME company, not just content development or not just accreditation or not just outcomes. So that was pretty exciting. I did want to jump in because you said some things there that I thought were really interesting. One was you obviously moved around a few kind of little companies early on. And I feel like somebody needs to do some kind of sociogram to map the interrelationships between some of those early CME companies and the people working with them and track where everybody kind of ended up. Be cool. Because you should so do that. It's a common thread in a lot of people's stories about how they got into CME. And I'm also curious, you mentioned Ohio. Whereabouts in Ohio? Cincinnati. Okay, so uh, I actually grew up in Chillicothe. You can't tell oh, from my accent. <laughs> not really, but interesting. <laughs> we left when I was eight, and I've spent most of my life in Scotland. So I kind of know that area. I, you know, I have family in the Cincinnati area. So. Yes, yes. So you trained as a physician. I did. You ended up in pediatrics. That didn't quite fulfill your notion of, of what clinical practice ought to feel like or look like. Can you talk a little bit about what some of that disillusionment was? What were the parts of clinical practice that didn't meet that expectation? Certainly. At that time, I think it's a little smoother now, but at that time, the day-to-day of taking care of patients in the clinic setting, the outpatient clinic setting, involved a lot of deciding if you could prescribe an agent based on the insurance the patient had Mm -hmm. rather than what they really needed the most or what was really the best therapy for them. Uh, And also, you know, spending time really negotiating with insurance gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I certainly am about cost containment and management, but it became time consuming to deal with a lot of the administrative things related to managed care and uh, insurance reforms that, were just very new to everybody, right. including patients and offices. And I was so early out of residency that I just thought maybe there's something else. The other thing, which is all the things that I knew were, I think they call them social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I would get kids that had asthma and they would basically have a therapeutic ride in the car, meaning The house was smoky. They had an asthma attack. But by the time they got into some fresh air and took that ride in the fresh air into the emergency room where I saw them, they were much better. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet I knew I would treat them 
and send them back to that same environment. And that just didn't feel good. I know it's a reality of life, but certainly your career has to kind of match with your personality and what makes you feel fulfilled. And I, I was very unhappy that I had to kind of send kids back to situations that they came from that were not helping their health or were even detrimental to it. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of it. The third thing I would say is that I cite a lot is social related, meaning I love and thank goodness we have medical social workers. But as a clinician, and maybe this is a, a chance to address it, but as a clinician, I didn't get training or tools on how to do that. You learn the ones that you need to, to get patients where they need to go. Mm-hmm for the most chronic illnesses, but I just didn't feel equipped or know how to get equipped to deal with kind of the social dynamics of patient care. Oh, that makes so much sense when you think about the history of not just medical training, but nursing training. I I trained as a nurse many decades ago, social work, all the kind of related professions, you know, Although some schools have moved toward a more interdisciplinary model, we still have this kind of siloed experience of training at an undergraduate level for doctors and nurses and I guess pharmacists too. So I'm interested how much, from your perspective, how much you think that has changed in the clinicians you deal with in your everyday work, the learners that you see. Right. I definitely talk to learners a lot. We get a lot of feedback in other ways, and it definitely has improved a lot, um, you know, down to the fact of <laughs> even as I'm writing grants, which is part of my role now for CME to be funded and proposed. We have learning objectives that say, uh, you know, incorporated a multidisciplinary approach to name the disease. So when it gets to that level, you know that it's really important to really all the stakeholders and you know that it's pervasive. So I think since the time that I practiced, it's definitely gotten better within really even the smallest to the largest hospital system. I also serve on the board of trustees for my local healthcare system. So we talk about these things as well. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a high priority to reach out to your colleagues in other disciplines and help get these patients where they need to go. And it's not all, you know, therapeutics. Um, It's a lot of support. Right. And the thing that hasn't changed are the social determinants of health. Absolutely. And in fact, in 2020 in particular, we've seen just how unevenly spread those social determinants are in terms of race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status and so on. I guess that that kind of raises a question. You know, I think one of the things that comes up and you kind of alluded to it in CME CPD a lot is, is there a role for education to address these structural issues that individual clinicians can do very little about. Of course, you know, we all as individuals can address what is in front of us at an interactional and a personal level. But how can education really dig into some of those uh, very durable structural issues? Absolutely. I really appreciate this question because 
It's one I grappled with earlier in my career. And I must say at that time, I was you know new to this concept of CME and really could quickly look at a gap in healthcare and say, yep, I believe that's addressable through education or that's a health system barrier that is best addressed maybe another way. I still somewhat feel that way, that indeed healthcare is a system. It has lots of moving parts. Everything is not addressable with education. And even if there is a component of that, some things are just better addressed. If you want more bang for your buck and you want speed and it being quick to implement, education is not the first thing you might do. But I do think education has a role in the structural issues. They exist a lot because of lack of knowledge and lack of education. Uh, and I do consciously say knowledge versus perception or feeling or stereotypes. There are actual knowledge gaps related to how to think about social determinants of health and racial disparities in healthcare. So, you know, you first have to dispel the myths by giving solid knowledge. But then from, I guess, after dispelling myths and getting the right facts in front of people, they, of course, next have to believe the facts. And believing and embracing those facts is more likely a role for something beyond education or different than education. More awareness and championing and other kinds of strategies that Mm. get people to take the facts that are now laid out through a knowledge-based presentation to them, perhaps, to doing something with it. That's such an interesting answer. And there's so much there. One is that um, kind of implicit connection I think you're making between that relationship between knowing and acting. There are intervening variables. And some of those variables are about belief and attitude and emotion. And the way that you know emotion can derail your implementation of something you know to be true or factual. And that happens as much for clinicians as, as anybody else, even though clinicians may be rationalists in the work that they do. I totally agree with what, yeah, everything you're saying. It's interesting. Yeah. Could you give any examples of situations where you're faced with a structural barrier or a health system barrier? And education and myth displacement or dispelling is definitely needed as part of moving forward with education. Certainly. It recently came up in a a CME activity I developed with a clinician, a cardiologist, uh, who is actually the past president of the National Association of Black Cardiologists. So he's really into, you know, the clinical science, of course, but also patient awareness, clinician awareness, mm-hmm. everything it takes to make people African-Americans have healthier hearts. Right. <laughs> so he's involved in all aspects of that. So well, the program, though, was on vascular disease. And he talked a lot about just the sheer facts that even though we hear things like um, African-Americans have higher risk of cardiovascular poor outcomes, and you know, even hear that women have been unappreciated in the past for mm-hmm. heart disease, as you know, men have heart attacks and not women. And so even among clinicians, you know, there are just these are beliefs that are based on information that we feel to be true because we're rationalists, as you said. But, you know, either those data have changed, the trend has switched, which happens in healthcare over time, 
or we just feel like we know we have the facts and we're, we just don't have the right facts. So we went did a lot about just saying um, the things that people thought about, putting data behind the things that people you know knew that there is a higher risk um, in African-Americans of having poor outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, of having the disease of, at all, um, having amputations due to it if it gets worse, um, higher risk of when it's a, a comorbid condition with diabetes and other, other things and hypertension. So I think, you know, refreshing, and this is the thing about medicine is you learn it, but you have to, you have to keep it fresh. You have to relearn it later See if it's changed since the last time you learned it. And so while some knowledge-based activities are not 100% new information, you need reinforcement, which is, of course, one of the concepts in CME. You, you teach it, but you have to reinforce it. So we reinforce some things people you know, knew or felt, beliefs they felt about disparities among African-Americans related to vascular disease. But we also you know, touched on other areas that are becoming more that are linked to race, but are not primarily race, which is like rurality, people in rural areas versus urban areas. And, you know, I guess we we need education because we don't always think of all the characteristics people have. They have, you know, their ethnicity, uh, their, their genetic makeup, their phenotype, but then they have the genes that relate to ancestry, but then they may have grown up in a different kind of community than their ancestry dictates, you know, gender or you know, not ascribed to selecting a specific vendor. There's all these kind of buckets, and I hate kind of that word is not my favorite word, but, you know, every single individual has all these categories associated with them um, that not to say label, but because we do data, we collect data based on these labels. Um, we need to say, you know, what group has science said might benefit most from this versus that? And I think that's the value in the education about um, social determinants of health is that when you see a person, you're trying to predict their risk of having a bad outcome. You're trying to increase their probability of having a good outcome. And if we have data based on some markers about a person, some characteristics about a person that helps you predict which patient in front of you is going to get, should get this versus that, then I think that's the value of thinking about social determinants. That is a, such a layered explanation. It is. I Did you hear me getting buried under there? <laughs> no, but, and I use, choose the word layered deliberately because you very beautifully layered all the pieces that we experience as individuals. Right. As we live all those layers, but as a clinician, you have to pull out what you're saying is the most relevant layer Yes. in order to manage the part of the person that's in front of you. I totally agree. And I, you know, I will caveat this um, a little bit because, you know, if, it, if we truly don't have data or at least strong anecdotal evidence or even some degree of a strong feeling about, you know, when I see these kinds of patients, I, I this tends to be what happens to them, which is, I guess, truly anecdotal, but no one's published it or written it. It's just kind of shared oral history in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we have those data, it is important to have these uh, categories of, of kind of uh, the kind of patient you're looking at. I will say, though, you know, to balance that, when we don't have those data, 
we have to be careful about labeling people if there's no point yet. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I don't know if that helps describe what I'm saying, but. Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about health and healthcare disparities, a lot of the early work, I'm thinking of people like Ronald Epstein and uh, Lisa Johnson, I think her name is, I'll have to check, Lisa Cooper at Harvard. Okay. A lot of the early work was really on patient-provider communication Okay. between largely African-American patients and Caucasian clinicians and the ways in which those labels worked against patients because they would not be heard by clinicians because of the label. The label just gets in the way. Right. But I I don't want to impose. Is that what you were talking about? Yes. Use labels when they're beneficial. Don't use them when they get in the way and are not helpful. Okay. Exactly. That's a quote, Monique. Yes. (laughs) I love that. So I'm conscious of your time. (laughs) What has changed in 2020 about how you approach educating clinicians. You know, the whole world has been disrupted and the industry in particular. Well, right. So I think in uh, 2020, compared to maybe 2010 or earlier even, that seems changes in some fundamental ways that are mostly good. One is we have come further in recognizing that healthcare is a system that involves more than just physicians. So there's been more of a focus on involving all the disciplines, nursing, pharmacist, therapy, whether it be physical, occupational, all kinds of disciplines. And that is even reflected in the fact that the alliance to which a lot of CME professionals belong to, Mm -hmm. which uh, has changed its name to ACEHP, which, you know, HP came into play because that's healthcare professionals. Um, It's not just doctors. So, it's definitely been embraced that, uh, you know, doctors are not just the only player on this field that can help patients have better outcomes. In fact, other disciplines may be more influential on actual patient outcomes than physicians in many, in many ways, in many cases. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say in general is that we have become I'm more socially aware mm-hmm. and uh, certainly, and this is kind of reflecting on some of my answers previously, become more aware of the social determinants of health, which is, as you probably can tell, one of my passions for learning about and teaching others about. And so we've definitely incorporated more of that into CME and medical education in general uh, in medical school curriculum. Um, I work with some people on the ACGME, which is mm-hmm. uh, graduate medical education. And so I know that that's happened in that space as well. And then the third thing is really related to just the 2020 in general, but also specifically the COVID pandemic is that um, we have had to pivot. And luckily, a lot of CME companies, at least ones I've worked for um, in the MEC, which is medical education communication companies group under CME, uh, I'm not as sure about the you know academic CME um, or societies, but certainly we have pivoted and certainly embraced technology very well. Um, luckily, a lot of CME companies had done that before, offering many or the high percentage of their overall activities were online already before the COVID uh, pandemic started. We've definitely embraced newer platforms thinking outside the box about how to use Zoom, 
differently because now there's Zoom fatigue. And so (laughs) people tuning in, you know, we've got to make it more exciting or just, you know, find a way to make it more engaging. So pivoting to really embrace technology rapidly has been a really important change and innovation that we've had to do in a year, basically, but has definitely been a fundamental change since, you know, just before Mm -hmm. 2010. And what resources and supports did you and your company have in place to, you know, allow that pivoting in 2020? Well, you know, I'm lucky to be with the company I am with because they are really a very technology forward company. And, you know, for for example, very technology forward, having our own on-site studio so that clinicians come to that studio and do recordings like they're on NBC, first per se, on Nightline. So I think that the tools and resources that we had in place even before COVID were really extraordinary, but we certainly had to think about outside vendors to help because now we need to do more things online and um, growing is takes time. So we've had to seek out, recruit other technology vendors. We've had to build even more solid relationships with our current technology vendors uh, and these are mostly the vendors that help us get the content out to the audience, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily develop it, but to get it uh, completed, to get it broadcast somewhere out there um, to the learners. And so that's been very interesting and fun. Uh, we've also worked with you know gamification kind of ideas to make it be, we have a leaderboard, so an activity where they ask questions and you put your initials in and just like on a video game, there's a leaderboard and you get scores and points for things. And that was quite exciting. And the the faculty loved it. The (laughs) audience loved it. Um, It was pretty simple technology wise to do, you know, just it's basically take your ARS and just make sure, make it calculate some points and show it, you know, uh, updating every time they answer a new question. So I think in order for, the company I'm with now to pivot quickly and be nimble in getting what needed to be done, done in a different way, given COVID. One of the things is having an on-site studio is very valuable, having you know very trained technicians for that studio, having graphic designers. Uh, and, you know, of course, the theme here is, is what I'm listing is that these people help get the CME education, looking and feeling inviting and enticing to the learner, and then also getting that out to the learner Mm -hmm. because you can create it, but if you don't get it to them, they don't have it. Yeah. You've got to have distribution channels. Yeah. Yeah. So that distribution channel partners that we trusted um, was very helpful. I think those are the tools that really helped this be a efficient process. Thanks for sharing that, Monique. Two short questions. What are some of the things that should change in how the CME CPD field educates clinicians as we kind of move forward into, I'm not going to say post-COVID, I'm going to say COVID-challenged world? I think CME has you know, certainly come a long way, continues to be a very revolutionary in a state, which is a good thing, evolving constantly. And that's what makes it exciting for me. I guess I would say the things that, you know, should change or my wish list for CME would be that it strive to be a little more engaging in the online format 
really thinking outside the box, really using examples from other media types, Mm -hmm. um, media outlets. And, you know, I certainly, you know, these are patients, this is patient care. It's very serious. I don't want to minimize that. At the same time, we are a culture of needing some degree of being engaged and entertained. And so I think CME can learn a lot from using kind of the entertainment industry and some tips and tricks to just add a little bit of, you know, edge or intrigue to things to make it be more engaging to learners and to want them to tune in. So entertainment and edge. Being provocative and intriguing. Oh. Some mystery around it. Yeah. We need sexy CME, sexy CME, you know, sexy meaning just enticing, you know. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think we need to have a a follow-up conversation about that. How can listeners find you? I can be found on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm also uh, certainly available by email and social media wise. I am on Twitter with a dedicated CME account there. Wonderful. Dr. Monique Johnson, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Monique reminds us of the extent to which structural barriers remain to delivering quality education to clinicians in healthcare. It's certainly true that continuing medical education and continuing professional development recognizes the importance of a systems-based approach to education now much more than a decade ago even. But it remains critical to map and integrate social determinants of health into clinician education. The intensification of the social justice movement in 2020 and the inequities reinforced by the COVID pandemic highlight the relevance of a social determinants of health approach to professional education. The American Medical Association has recognized this by offering a module on disparities and social determinants of health for medical students in its education hub. But such education is few and far between in the continuing education space. We can do better. We must do better. I'm your host, Alex Housen. Thanks for joining us on Right Medicine. Right Medicine.